The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Ramesh. Um, like all good Buddhists, I see that you decided to embrace suffering and sit inside here and be outside on this absolute picture-perfect spring evening. There is something wrong with this picture. Enlightenment, I think, is outside, not here. But since you've come here, thank you for joining me. Um, <clears throat> just by way of introduction, uh, for some of you, um, my, name, um, my name is Ramesh. I have been coming to Common Ground for about 12, 13 years. I'm a psychiatrist by profession. And uh, I do some workshops, and I am currently serving on the board here. And I sub for Mark. I'm on the group of uh, folks who sub for Mark when he's away. And some of you who may have heard me talk before uh, know that I um, know that um, I never give the typical dharma talks. Um, I, this is more like confessions of a struggling meditator. Um, and this is a support group, and all I talk about is either what I'm, you know, challenges I'm facing now or what I've faced before. Um, so there won't be any references to the Buddha, the suttas, no Mary Oliver poems or Rumi, um, just uh, confessions. So, and what I thought I'd talk about today is something that has plagued me all my life, not just in meditation, um, which is uh, making excuses. Um, and I, I, I don't know how many of you um, have that problem, but uh, maybe a minority, so those of you who don't have the problem, please go ahead and enjoy the sunshine. You know, there's nothing new you're going to learn here. This is just me and my problem with making excuses about doing or not doing things that I think I should be doing. So I'll talk about meditation, but you'll see very easily it's generalizable to any aspect of your life. So talking about meditation, um, I don't know about you, but despite having practiced this for almost 15 years, uh, some, there's something magical about the end of December that makes me think that come January 1st, I'm going to be the meditator that I never was before. So that resolution fires me up. And, you know, it's winter, so we're all introverted. Uh, and then, predictably, by March 1, it's all faded away. Then there's the dreariness of this never-ending winter, excuses. And what feels most comfortable in March for me is ice cream, internet, television, uh, anything but meditation. It's just, it's like I need, to, I need to take care of myself. And somehow meditation doesn't feel like taking care of myself. Because spring is around the corner, and spring is rejuvenation, new, you know, next chance, next round of making resolutions. So come June, and I'm finding that I'm making excuses. Or even if I'm practicing, there is a quality to the practice that feels like, you know, I'm just going through the motions. So this is the time of year that I last two or three years that I've been literally consciously looking at um, what is it about my routine that creates this thing that I call an excuse. Um, and I realized that I knew cognitively that I was, I, I'm making an excuse, but th that didn't get me anywhere. And like many other concepts in life, once we have a word to it or we understand it cognitively, we think we've got it. And th you just, just know the con job. And so that's why the, the practice 
is that excuse itself becomes an object of meditation. And hopefully I'll, you know, explain it without leaving you with more excuses not to ever come back and listen to me. <laughs> or reasons rather than excuses. So. so one of the things is that, you know, momentums are very difficult to overcome. And so the thing that I notice is that between March and May, and especially this winter that lasted until end of April, there is this level of dreariness and anger and frustration um, that excuses come in thick and fast. And even when everything turned bright, there was that momentum kept going. And so I couldn't just get back into my sit, so to speak. But it was more than just sitting. It was this attitude that brought me to meditation. So, and, you know, just think of some of these things that may resonate with you. So it's amazing how often these stories come up. I've had a busy day. Um, I'm just too tired. But I'm feeling too relaxed. It's such a good day. Maybe I should be doing something outside. Or I'll start from tomorrow. There's always this tomorrow. And so I'm going on a kind of solo retreat um, starting on Sunday. And it's amazing how little I've meditated this week. Because there is this Sunday that I'm going to be a solid retreat. You know, a little halo coming already growing here. <laughs> just with this anticipation of this good, the goodness I'm going to do. By the way, in psychology, it's called moral licensing. We, we um, apply a moral value to a routine task. So uh, what we do is, um, say, towards Christmas and the holidays, we indulge because we've applied a moral value to all the dieting we're going to be doing starting January 1. So it doesn't feel sinful to be gluttonous at the end of December. So for me, it doesn't feel sinful not to be you know, doing meditation right now, because next week, by golly, there's going to be an enlightened person around here. And then, of course, the, especially for those of us with so-called intellectual tendencies, there are plenty of um, meditation substitutes. You can always read a book, you can always meet with a dharma buddy and, you know, talk, have that intellectual conversation, listen to dharma talks, uh, or just contemplate life. Uh, all that's just excuses. But if you look at it, there is a sense of aversion to what you think you should be doing. And then um, the other part is the flip side of I'm going to be good next week is I've sucked already for the last month. You know, what's another day? What's another week? You know, and that continues the momentum. So, I told you it's confession time. So, <laughs> and then if you're in a funk, <clears throat> this happens more in the midst of winter. Um, you know, get into a funk, then you the doubt, the the, the fifth hindrance of uh, you know the, of the five hindrances. It is, is this really of any value? You know, I'm 52 years old. I've been practicing for 15 years. Not much enlightenment. You know, you know maybe I've got it wrong. Next 15 years, I should try beer or something. It's not a brew pub. <laughs> um, I just have one life to live. You know, this beautiful spring, been waiting for this. Perhaps I should be out in the nature rather than, you know, going inward because fall and winter are coming. But what I noticed as I started watching excuses, it never works in the reverse. It never says, you know, I only have one life to live and one time to meditate. Maybe I'll have the ice cream next week and I'll meditate now. It's always, let me have the ice cream now and meditate tomorrow. Or I'll diet tomorrow and indulge now. And so that was, the, to me, an aha moment that this is just another story. Just reminding myself that I'm making an excuse 
doesn't get me anywhere. I need to understand the mechanics of excuses. And to me, again, I'll mention, it comes from a state of aversion. But because I'm you know, conditioned to be, intellectual is not the word, problem solving in a linear way, um, I can easily rationalize almost anything in life. And so you can do it over and over again, year after year, and find that, oh, I thought I knew excuses, but I'm not changing my habit. So that's why the, mind, the core of mindfulness practice is to be actually mindful of the process of excuse-making. And so once you are, first of all, you have to acknowledge it. And so um, this is not easy. And so it requires kind of almost moment-by-moment moment awareness uh, and you may not have, have to spend the entire half an hour of your sit. You may just devote five minutes of that half an hour of dreaded I have to sit to kind of watching what is so dreadful about this 30 minutes that I decided I'll devote to sitting here. And I'll go into more detail later on. But the, the, the other realization in the last couple of years was just my habit of intellectualizing it. So you may want to initially think about what is happening here about you know, my intention to meditate, my intention to diet, my intention to exercise, but then the stumbling block that's coming. It's in that stumbling block is where you have the wisdom. What we often do is we get past the stumbling block and come up with an explanation, which is the excuse. And then we stay with the excuse and not do it. So let me repeat it, because I think I may be confusing some of you. So you decide to diet, you decide to, excuse, uh, to exercise, or you decide to meditate. There is something about the present moment that fills you with dread at the thought of doing it. So that's the aversion. But instead of staying with the aversion, because it's unpleasant, our mind rationalizes why you don't want to do it. And that excuse is very, it's very attractive. And once you believe in it, you're off with it and you're not doing it. And you reinforce that pattern of aversion. Because you made this particular task, whether it's dieting or exercise or meditation, an object of aversion. And that's how this habit keeps perpetuating. So the first step is to kind of pause at the moment when you are faced with whatever act you want to do. You decide, I'm going to take a walk every evening at 5.30. Come 5.30, you click the TV. So, you already made an excuse. It's so fast that you don't even have to think about it. So all you want to do is, be, at some level, bring awareness to this intention to go for a walk, and you're not doing, but you have to not click the TV on and stay with that uncomfortable sensation of is being. And just even if five minutes later you go on to the TV, you've done yourself some good by breaking that momentum. The same thing applies. And I'll give you examples, more specific ones around the time of exercise. And this is where, again, the, the three aspects of practice that I talked about are really key here. Again, you're not trying to solve the problem of excuses because you've been doing it already. Every time you make a resolution, you are solving the problem of excuse in the most ineffective way. So you want to be with the excuse. So not doing, you want to be with what does it feel like to be making excuses? The second thing is that simplicity. Again, you can intellectualize it, come up with fancy cognitive explanations, all keep dropping that. And that simplicity is essentially drop that and come back to this unpleasantness. Because that story is all getting you away from the unpleasantness. 
And then the third part is, you will fail. Again, the younger you are, the less likely to. But, but my age, boy, the momentum is so far entrenched. If I'm not kind to myself, you know, it just is not going to work. But things do change. This is neuroplasticity. This is conditioning. You can at whatever age. And again, it's helpful to remember meditation doesn't mean sitting and watching your breath exclusively. Yeah, there are some benefits to that. But all this that I'm talking about is the process of meditation. It's a process of mindfulness. In fact, in my humble opinion, it's far more helpful than to force yourself to sit for 30 minutes every day. Because as I've said many times, again, remind myself that 30 minutes of solid mindfulness can be easily dissipated with 10 hours of total mindlessness. So, you know, periodic, two, three minutes of mindfulness um, five, six times, ten times a day, every time you're stuck in traffic, or the jackass cuts you off, me. Uh, are you standing in the checkout line, as I did just now at Seward Co-op? So many times there's this, solve the problem. I'm in no rush. I had half an hour when I was at Seward Co-op to get here. Half an hour is plenty of time. But the mind has this story that I need to get through this checkout line. So it is a great time to drop my shoulders, rock on my heels, and do some standing meditation. But again, no excuses, no thought, just connecting to some aspect of the present moment. So those of you who are prone to excuses and have not really worked with it as an object of contemplation and meditation, for several weeks, that's all you may have to do. So pick one aspect of your life where you said, you know, I'm going to do something. It doesn't have to be meditation. Uh, cleaning my house or tidying up the, you know, my drawer, whatever. Some, pick something simple that doesn't require a lot of effort. And then as say you decide that I'm going to tidy up my bedroom on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. And come Saturday morning, 9 o'clock, and you're faced with the world's worst aversion. And so you may have a valid reason that it's 75 and a gorgeous day for a walk, but in that, it is an excuse. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the walk, but it also doesn't mean you can't spend 15 minutes tidying up a part of your bedroom. Because the story in that goodness of the walk is also blended the story of aversion to cleaning and procrastination, etc. So you may want to spend five minutes just standing in your bedroom marinating in that awful sensation of, I don't want to do this. That's meditation, because it's awful feeling. And then you may want to spend 10, time tidy, 10 minutes tidying up a part of your bedroom and then going for a walk. So you rewarded yourself and you, know, you changed a little bit of the habit pattern. So that's the first step. It's going to take a while, and doing it over and over again. And then once you become sensitive, I mean, for me, it's literally I can watch that excuse arise as I'm walking towards my meditation spot in my house. Literally, the kind of tightness. You know, I'm doing the dishes, and I can't wait to get to my cushion. It's all done. Everything's tidied up. As I'm trundling up, it's like, I could read the book. You know, there is a slowing. There's this leaden heaviness that sets in. Yeah. So now it's become a habit. But to me, that's mindfulness. And there are some days it's so awful, because I've, I may have had a really bad day at work. The, the energy level is so high. And so I may just stand there for 10 minutes watching this aversion and being kind that, you know, don't force yourself to sit. 
on a day when you've had an awful time. So even if I'm watching TV, do it mindfully, because on that day, that's all I can do. But if I'm not aware of the sequence, then I may end up watching TV mindlessly and then go to bed feeling guilty. So I'm just, it's like, you know, you may have heard of the parable of the second arrow. This is like the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth arrows, and I'm going to bed that way. Again, for all of you where this does not make any sense, please exit and enjoy the sunshine outside. <laughs> Okay, so that's the aversion part. The second thing is, <clears throat> as I said, you really want to connect your practice to where you are in your life. You know, if you're a young mother of two kids with a lazy husband, jackass of a boss, you know, some aging parents who need help, and if you're going to commit yourself to an hour of sitting meditation every day and expect tranquility and calm, you're being extremely unkind to your body and your mind. And so, you know, I'm not saying what you can do, but what you can do is be aware of the energy level of your body. So you may find yourself doing something in your day where you can still, with your eyes open, doing that activity. As you're picking up after your kids, you can be aware of whatever physical sensations you're experiencing. And so the, the, the reason this is important in the context of excuses is that if we're not aware of where our body is, where our mind is, then we are forcing it through some narrow channel. And when it doesn't happen, it's so aversive that our mind creates an excuse and just becomes a reason not to do it. And as I said earlier, if you feel like you're committed to this, then you just end up beating yourself up unnecessarily. So that's why, you know, before every meditation said, you know, now I don't tell myself, but the first thing I do is just connect myself to the energy level in my body. And there are days when sitting is not an option. If I've had a really nasty meeting with you know, the hospital, etc., then all I may be able to do is a brisk walk, just feeling that anger or frustration or helplessness or whatever happened. That's all I can do. But I'm doing it with an awareness of this is the state of my body and mind. Whereas hopefully next week after two or three days of meditation, if I'm still doing that, then something else is going on. And, but I may now create a story that by next Wednesday, I should be in a state of extreme tranquility. That's also just a story. And that's why my first, uh, the, the first aspect of meditation that I talked about, you're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying to create a story of I should be something. You be and the outcome is, will be determined by causes and conditions. So as part of this meeting yourself where you are, you know, first is energy level, but the second thing is you may then decide, you know, for the next six months of my life, it's going to be so hectic, so crazy, that this mindfulness, this vipassana practice, this wisdom awareness practice is just too energetic. It's too draining. I just don't have the wherewithal to do it. And you may just say, I'm going to do just basic concentration practice, tranquility, samadhi practice. And you're setting aside any notion of, watching what's going on, attitude, etc., and you just pick an object of meditation and just keep honing. And that is a goal-directed activity. And I've given a couple of talks on samadhi, and it's that it is literally, I wouldn't say mindless, but you are deliberately saying, I'm not going to watch the processes of the mind, but I'm going to go towards that activity because 
if I, it's, as you exclude many other sensations, there is a calmness that happens. And you can do it five minutes after you wake up, five minutes in the middle of the day, and five or ten minutes at bedtime. That's all you may be able to do. But the point is to recognize that you want to keep connecting to the energy level in your body and mind um, almost on a daily basis. And that's one way of you being kind to yourself without doing any kind of self-compassion practice. This is just being kind. And so this includes just basic breath meditation or walking meditation or standing. And for those of you who are used to you know, hard practices like uh, loving kindness, etc. So those are all concentration practices. Those are all calming practices. And you can just you know, engage in them to the extent that um, time permits. So you recognize the situation. And you said, you know, 30 minutes mindfulness awareness practice is not possible. And you recognize the aversion. And instead of trying to probe into the aversion, you say, I'm just going to keep directing my awareness to this particular sensation. And it could also be standing and looking at the sun as it's setting down, as, it, you know, as, it, as the color of the leaves change on that tree out there. You know, just beautiful sight. And then or you could be sitting outside just feeling the sensation of the, the wind across your body. But eventually, um, you know, we do this practice to understand the workings of the mind. And so, um, again, when your life permits it, you want to begin to get beneath the story of whatever you know, your mind comes up with uh, as a reason for not doing something. Um, so one way of looking at it is you check your attitude. And, and there are many ways of looking at attitude. Uh, and Uttejaniya is a teacher that many of us uh, really you know, uh, kind of admired and found a lot of value from, uh, from his teachings. He's a contemporary t Burmese teacher. Um, and he talks about uh, right view. Uh, and and there is that you know, right view, you can practice right view for five years and still just scratch the surface. So one way of looking at it, at least the way I look at it, is what am I bringing to this, this desire to be connected to mindfulness meditation? And the answer is, again, each of us will come up with their own answer. But the way I, the, the analogy I'd give you is, what is the intention I bring to my daily interactions with my patients? So it, I can say that I want to be compassionate. I want to listen to them. I want to be kind to them. I want to not do any harm. But these are all components. But if you put it all together, there is something that drives me as a totality, and which is that I, for me, it is that I want to do the best I can with all the limitations. But even that is captures in words that a intention, which is a wholesome thing. Or the other thing I can talk about a little more, perhaps coarse, is you know the intention that I bring to my marriage. You know, yeah, I can say I don't want to cheat on my wife, I don't want to be abusive to her, I don't want to be a jerk, I want to help her in the house. But more is that there is a sense of it's a heartfelt presence that. I want this to be a wholesome relationship. Okay, that's all I can say in terms of words. Same way as I approach my patients or my, you know, as in my role as a medical director, is that there is a goal, there is an intention that I want things to be well. But in that wellness are these components that I believe that I have to treat my colleagues with respect. If they misbehave, I treat them with respect, but then correct them appropriately, etc. 
but I can't mistake these tactics for the intention because it's the intention that drives me towards the tactics. And sometimes you will see in every aspect, you know, people mistake the intention, uh, the tactics. So I was such a good husband, I was helping her around the house, and she still won't listen to me, blah, blah, blah. No, those are all part of the bigger intention. Nobody said that if you intend to have a wholesome marriage, that, that there will not be a lot of setbacks and disappointments. Same with your job, same with anything else you do. The thing about an intention is that it includes a lot of setbacks, a lot of disappointment and frustration. Whereas these tactics are just things. It's like, again, a, a football quarterback. You know, how much do they train? They're not training to win the Super Bowl, but winning the Super Bowl is, is a nice aspiration. What they want to be is, I want to be the healthiest, well-rounded player that I can show up for game after game which also includes an attitude that can deal with disappointments and setbacks. So that's how I define view, because that view is what will um, help you understand why do you want to meditate in the first place? Because then that will take you to why am I making excuses? Because if I really want to be a wholesome husband and I'm abusive to my wife, something is not adding up. But that wholesome intention is more likely to help me pause, study, understand, etc. But if I don't have the wholesome intention, then I'm seeing this as a problem, that single you know, abusive relationship. Or my not being able to meditate itself is not a problem. It's what am I bringing to my overall life, which also includes if I'm watching internet or television mindlessly, if I'm zipping in and out of traffic like a jerk, that's my intention about being mindful includes traffic, includes checkout line, includes Izzy's ice cream store. You know, it includes all those things. So that's why it's important here as well. So once you have that intention, then you can slowly start transitioning to the actual so if you now decided that I am going to, you know, so long as your life circumstances permit, I will sit for 15 to 20 minutes every day. Okay, again, it's not a black and white tactic, but it's guided by the intention. And, in, you know, you're always connecting to the day. But you will find that there are days when the day is not too bad. Your energy level is not too bad, but you don't want to sit. And that's the day life is offering you the opportunity to study meditation, to study excuse. And so I'll share with you what I've done. And as I mentioned earlier, it is that as I walk up, it, you know, I walk up the stairs and I can easily turn right and go into my study and catch up with those emails that, if not responded to in the next half an hour, will cause some major world catastrophe. That's how it feels. Like, oh, I bet. Because the story for me is if I forget to write that email, you know, I'll forget tomorrow. Even though I can put a simple note somewhere. But you're just watching the stories coming up. And then there are days when you just stand in front of the cushion or your, mind, your bench, and you just stand there. And so for those of you who've done some of this practice at some depth, you know, there is this whole teaching called the four foundations of mindfulness. The first foundation is mindfulness of the body. And that's the easiest to connect to, easiest, um, because there's something very substantial about the body. And I gave you some examples of what you can connect to, which includes visual and you know, physical sensations of you know, the wind and the breeze. 
but you can get down to subtle levels. But if you really want to make some <coughs> deep progress, you want to get to the second foundation. The, the Pali word is Vedana. The English translation often is called feeling tone. But all this is very confusing. The, the notion is that every sensory experience has a feeling tone. And the feeling tone is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The thing is this feeling tone happens in such a flash that most of us don't connect to it. We are already reacting to the feeling tone. And so that's the pause. That's the essence of wisdom practice is as you connect and as things slow down, and then you will find that you have a physical sensation or a thought, and there's a feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and boom, before you know it, you've gone off onto a story to solve it, aversion, etc. And so it's in that little gap that you can begin to work. And trust me, excuse has a very solid feeling tone. But excuse is the story. Just before that is something that has caused it. And at that time, it may not necessarily be aversion to this. It could be attraction to the internet or the TV. So it doesn't matter what you experience, but you want to stay with that energy. Because both aversion and uh, attraction or craving have a lot of energy. And once you feel, get into the habit of connecting to that, and for me, sitting in traffic, what brings me back to the moment is not that traffic, but the aversion to traffic. Traffic is what it is. It's the aversion that I'm now connecting to that reminds me to come back. And I've mentioned this story many, many times here, and it, but this occurred to me a couple of years ago. I thought I hate checkout counters, checkout lines. Um, so if you will find me at 6.30 at a cub every Saturday. I do the shopping at home. 6.30, I go. I'm the only one there. I'm out of there. And every time I've been stuck in a, you know, a queue, um, checkout line, I hate it. I'm that idiot who's jumping from queue to queue <laughs> and spending 10 extra minutes as opposed to. But that's me. Until one day, um, I wouldn't say who, relatives, were visiting home. And my wife sent me out to a grocery store to pick something at 10.30 in the morning. It's a noisy house, big TV, lots of sports talk. I could have picked the longest line and enjoyed it for the entire afternoon. And if I had forgotten something in the car park, I would have gone back, called my wife and said, honey, sorry, I had to go back in, spent another 20 minutes. That was the aha moment. There's nothing about the checkout line that is inherently good or bad. But as Shakespeare said, thinking makes it so. Again, if I'm coming to common ground for a big talk here, and I'm stuck in traffic, lots of aversion. If I have to come to Abbott Northwestern for a departmental meeting that I hate, traffic is godsend. Sorry, folks, stuck in traffic. I'm going to go back to United. I live in St. Paul. Again, so same thing is that if meditation gets you from cleaning something that your spouse wants you to do, you will sit for and meditate for a whole hour. <laughs> it's a pretty mindless meditation. You know, and so on and so on. But th therein lies, it's that you don't have to sit to understand what's going on in your body, in your mind. In that process of excuse-making, you are being mindful. And what you want to be mindful of at this stage is the feeling tone. And boy, it is not very pleasant. I mean, I, I'm a, some of you may have heard me speak here before. I'm a sugar freak. You know, it takes a lot of effort for me to stay on 94 on my way back home to St. Paul and not create an exit and go to Izzy's. You know, 
And now I can do it, but I, because I, I can feel the, I mean, there's a big gap between Izzy's, some of you may know, it's on Marshall. But boy, the pull, I mean, gravity is particularly strong out there, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there's something, it's a black hole or something. Uh, but I used to go from here because, you know, now I'm a little more comfortable giving these talks, but in the first few years, it was awful. I mean, I would leave here thinking that was the worst talk, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And ice cream is so comforting, right? You know, this awful churning in the stomach and sugar and fat. <laughs> we have some time. So that's Vedana. You know, it's a pleasant Vedana. And the thing that I, I missed out through all those years was that craving, inhaling that ice cream with a feeling of guilt, and then driving home saying, here I gave a talk on wholesome living, and here I have to go with, you know, with a toupee or something, so nobody recognizes me. <laughs> So at least now, after two, three years, I can go past. But you can feel this. It's a beautiful summer day. Izzy is what God made for a day like this. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, excuses, excuses. Uh, there is something about habit as well. Uh, you can do all the analyzing cognitively, intellectually, mindfully, but if you find that you've been doing this for a year and a half and you're still spinning your wheels, you have to decide, are you going to change this wiring? Because the more you do this, the more you avoid, at some point you're beyond mindfulness and you have to almost literally forcefully do a course correction. And then you engage a partner, a spouse, or a friend, or you know, then you really have to commit yourself in a slightly forceful way. And it could be, I'm going to show up here every Wednesday and have somebody in your life account, you know, hold you accountable for that. Or you tell someone, I'm going to meet you every Wednesday here, except when Ramesh is talking, of course, and then you show up every... And so, because you just want to do that basic deconditioning. You just, you, you develop such a deep habit pattern that um, you, you want, you need that kind of extraneous pressure to come. Um, or, you know, sign up for a monthly or every other month session with Mark. And so, you know, use the power of guilt uh, so you don't lie to Mark and then be honest, etc. Again, like most folks who've struggled with dieting or exercise, they'll tell you that once you get over this hump, it does become easier. And then you can then practice all the other things that I've talked about. And then, as I said, it's not just about meditation. I would say pick some other aspects of your life that are less challenging, and then apply these same principles there as well. And so, um, I, just pick something, okay? And you're contemplating doing that activity, and if you're not sensitive enough to Vedana, you can ask yourself the question, where am I? With your eyes open. And you will find that you are not there. You are somewhere, some story, I am sending an email, I'm planning for tomorrow, or I'm, you are in a story that is not in the present moment. I came across this quote from some anonymous person. He said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. And I don't think it was some Buddhist teacher. And that's really helped me over and over again. I'm sorry? But that was 1960s, so I'm sure you know, it's like there are so many quotes attributable you know, down to so many people. But you know, some, let's say John Lennon. But, um, but it's, it's, I, I often say that to myself, including 
when I, I was on this West Coast sunset on a vacation, and life was happening while I was making other plans, and the other plans was happening at that moment, I was describing what a beautiful sunset I'm watching to my colleagues here in St. Paul. I was not watching the sunset. So that's the other part is that there is a sadness. So once you recognize that, the sadness. And so that's why, again, remind yourself that mindfulness meditation is connecting yourself to some aspect of the present moment, which also includes a beautiful sunset that you can be completely oblivious of, having waited a whole year for this West Coast vacation. And so, you know what? I'm going to stop. I think I spoke a little too fast. We have 20 minutes. So you have two options. Either fill it with questions or we get done early. <laughs> and I'll treat myself to an easy. <laughs> if there are questions, I'll pass this mic along. And I believe the questions are recorded, but you can ask Kevin if you don't want that to be, if you want that to be erased. Yes, sir. Hi, Michael. Um, so I just want to say, uh, so when you were talking about like trying to meditate and how it's really hard to get yourself to do it, it sounded like there was like so much self-judgment in that. Like, like I should be doing this, and like, why am I not doing this? When meditation can be like a very difficult thing to get yourself to do. So it's like, I feel like that sort of uh, gets in the way, sort of all that self-judgment, like, like, uh, like, why can't I do this? I should be doing this. Um, and I feel like I've, I've kind of noticed this myself, like, you know, with, like, cleaning my apartment. It's, it's something that, like, it's difficult for me. And, like, sometimes I'll tell myself, you know, do this, or why, why can't you do this? But... Um, I feel like that's kind of distracting from understanding the real issue. It's it's really like like cleaning your apartment can be a very difficult thing and you shouldn't like I feel like you shouldn't like shame yourself like for not doing it. You should just sort of recognize and be aware that this is the best thing to do. Um I, I or I know that this is the best for me. Whether or not I end up doing it doesn't make me a bad person. It's just sort of ultimately what I should strive for. Okay, let me unpack a few things there. <clears throat> so first thing is, um, how many of you, I mean, be honest, when you first came to this practice, and for a while, how many of you equated meditation with sitting, with your eyes closed, watching your breath? And I can see some reluctant hands saying, maybe, perhaps. But that's, it's just, that, to me, that was a problem. And for me, I was on and off for a couple of years because for me, it was watching the breath. Until Shinzen Yang, one of the teachers uh, who we used to teach here years ago, said, yeah, you can connect yourself to the body. And he also connected to the sense of, you know, spend 10, 15, 20 minutes to, to the extent possible, create a sense of relaxation, and then give your mind something pleasant to connect to. So... The notion of I should meditate assumes two things. One is there is a certain fixed concept of meditation that you're trying to attain. And the second is if you don't, you're not trying hard enough. And the third part, as you said, if you're not, then you're a failure. You beat yourself up. So the first thing is, is you know, again, this is, you raised some 
many very profound questions. So I'll go back to those three things that I talked about. Drop any story of what a meditation should be like, what you're trying to achieve. We do that all the time. But it's a narrative. It's a story of what things should be like. And life is happening while you're making other plans. You're making plans about what the outcome of meditation should be or even the process of sitting should be while you're missing out on what's happening here and now. So that's one. Second is you, right where you are right now, are the product of your causes and conditions, starting with genes, your you know, life experiences, etc. I can assure you there are plenty of people, especially men, who feel no guilt at all in leaving a messy house, especially if they have a nagging spouse. Trust me, I mean, you feel guilty because you have a sense of, you know, clean, cleanliness is a wholesome thing to do. But, you know, whether it's excuses or whatever life circumstances you're not able to do. But just because you feel guilty, don't assume that everyone who's struggling with the same problem. So the other person may have to be mindful of something else, whereas you may have to. And so therein lies, so even the process of cleaning, somebody else may say, I did this and it worked for me. It's just a story that worked for them. You have to be able to watch the process of this step here. Okay. But again, mindfulness is a very useful hammer, but not everything is a nail. So in, in clinical practice, you know, there, you know, people struggle with a lot of behaviors that are you know, unhealthy. So CBT is very helpful, cognitive behavior therapy. So you don't go into the, the processes of aversion or excuse making. You just go through the cognitive process. And again, I won't go into details, but you can solve the problem there. And that's the example of what I said. Sometimes you just have to do it as I said towards the end of my talk, is you connect with the dharma buddy. You sign up to do it. That's cognitive behavior therapy. It's cognitively recognize that you're making these false stories as to avoid doing something, and you modify your behavior by creating some rewards or uh, not punishments, but you know, um, negative uh, rewards, that kind of stuff. Um, and then what was the third thing? Yeah, you did the moral license. Uh, you you created uh, you created you attached a moral value to cleaning or to uh, meditating. No, it's just being where you are. There's nothing morally good or bad. And just think about it. You know, I think of an auto, you know I'm in psychiatry. I see people with um, severe mental illness. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, so I see a lot of dementias and strokes and head traumas. Imagine someone with brain injury. You know. What, what would they be going through? And, you know, I, I've known a couple of uh, 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 teachers um, uh, who talked about their experience. One had hypothyroidism, you know, undiagnosed. And some of you may know, hypothyroid states can cause cognitive dulling. And this person was beating themselves up for not being a good meditator after being a teacher for like 10 years. So another story. And so it's this, you know, that's the whole other aspect is our life is lived in stories. And to me, that's where I get the zing. What is the story I'm telling myself? But it starts off with where am I right now and what am I feeling? So instead of I'm feeling guilty, guilt is a label that brings you to what am I feeling here? And take my ice cream examples if that helps or my traffic example. Sir? Um, I was just curious, not relating to the Dharma talk, but something you said uh, at the beginning of meditation. I guess I understand 
you know, connecting with the breath or connecting with some sort of visual object or some sort of verbal mantra. Um, but you talked about setting up like a, uh, creating a container for your mind to kind of rove within a certain space. And when you said that, I thought, what in the world is he talking about? As if I could erect some sort of barriers for my mind to vacillate within uh, when seemingly it just goes wherever it wants to go. So I'm curious, kind of, maybe, what did you mean by that and how to go about it? Thank you. Well, if, if I were to survey the group here, how many of them had that question, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> Both hands will go up all over the place. So I borrowed this concept years ago from listening to a talk by um, Joseph Goldstein. Again, I was conditioned by so many of the talks about you sit down, you come back to your body, come to your breath, and then you notice that it just doesn't want to be here. And so you trial and error, trial and error. And then he talked, he used this actual Hindi word uh, called gochara. Uh, is go is cow and chara is like pasture. So he talked about creating a kind of a, a large pasture and the analogy, apparently, is from the Buddhist time, Buddha's times, is that that's the role of a cowherd. You know, he, typically cowherd, they're watching the cows. They're not micromanaging, you bad cow, you sit here. But they're allowing them a pasture to range over. But then they're aware, and then they know when to pull some in, either by sounds or by, you know, the stick or just moving there. So there is a relaxed quality of awareness without micromanaging. So then um, I was at a retreat three, four years ago with Steve Armstrong at uh, Koinonia, and it was like day four, day five. I am at ease. But every time I close my eyes, it's just like, just the, it's like July 4th of thoughts, firework of thoughts. And, you know, my heart is slow, but I'm feeling flushed. So I know there's autonomic arousal. And I'm healthy, so it... So Given the causes and conditions of that retreat and where my body, mind find, found myself, something was being churned up. And that entire retreat after that, all I could do was keep my eyes open. And to me, that was the container, is that I would, and I only meditated in the big hall. It's a beautiful hall. Uh, it looks like a church, actually. Um, it's like a chapel. And so that container was what I needed for that, um, that retreat. And so some of you may not be able to close your eyes, so it's a visual container. Some of you may be able to close your eyes, but you need the space of this room and this inoffensive feeling of the people around. And so that's what I meant by container. So you're not, again, the size, it's not like you're trying to shut things out, but you're trying in a gentle way to provide a space like you would do with a toddler. You know, you want the toddler to explore, but with some safety, but you also don't want to give it an excuse to just go wandering. But if it happens, you'll come back with kindness, just as you would with a toddler. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have a question about the aversion thing <laughs> and talking about um, the, the story, because I think of it like act one is the inciting incident, something happens, and then we want to jump to act three. But in the middle is that act two of all that aversion and contemplating and anxiety and self-deprecation and all these things that can happen happen. 
And so when staying in that aversion part, what are some tricks of the trade to get to um, escape all those jumping to act three and, and staying with that? So I'll just share with you what worked for me and what still doesn't work for me. So first is, if you're really honest with yourself, what feels like act three is act 10 or 11. And that's why I gave you the example of Izzy's. It's like I get home and this awful feeling is a combination of, that was a sucky talk that I gave to that, what was I doing having that ice cream that I didn't even enjoy and now I'm feeling guilty and I feel awful about the totality. That arrow after arrow. So it's that tenth story. But it's so now after, you know, I've been doing this six, seven years, now I can feel that second arrow, maybe third arrow, as I'm zipping past Cretan. But it's amazing how quickly, boom, it just drops once I'm past that exit. That's the most amazing thing about this mind-body conditioning. So I don't even care about why it's happening as much as just being aware. Um, and the reason I talk ice cream is just because it's an easier thing for me to... I'm not an addict. I love sugar and chocolate, but, you know, I can do without it for an hour or so. <laughs> um, except when I'm sleeping. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, life throws so many things. Uh, examples. So, uh, traffic is easy for me. Uh, now, after years of practice. So you want to pick something that either gives you craving and aversion. They're just flip sides of the same coin. You know, am I going to Izzy because I am running away from the aversion of having given a lousy talk, or am I truly attracted to ice cream? On the lousy talk, it's aversion. Because if I really enjoyed the ice cream, I would relax and enjoy it instead of just guiltily snarfing it down so I can get home to my wife and say, I just came straight home from that. <laughs> What's the chocolate thing sticking here? <laughs> so, so pick, you know, and because it's funny for me now. Uh, and I, I found a lot of um, helpful tips from a book called The, uh, the Willpower Instinct. It's by a psychologist called Kelly McGonigal. I would say you should definitely listen to her Google talk. It's an hour-long talk that summarizes her book. And she's a Zen uh, teacher out in Stanford. Uh, so she's very familiar with this, but the, the moral licensing, etc. I got those concepts from there. But then I was able to apply those psychological basis to practice, and then I decided, yeah, what, you know, I'm not going to pick up the problems of my relationship with my, somebody in my life, or the challenges I face in the crisis in the emergency room, or a patient with dementia. Those are big things that really get me churned up. But there are many, many, many small things in my life, like Checkout crowd, you know, grocery line. It's throwing up a lot of aversion. Or when I've had a particularly bad day, I may go to Cub and stand like an idiot in front of the aisle, the, the, the dessert aisle. And if, if I'm honest with myself, it is so hard not to just open it, buy it, go, and open the tub in the car as you're driving. <laughs> because, and, and you have, just have to figure out what is it that gives you that level of uh, uh, you know, attraction. So is it aversion to a bad day or attraction to ice cream? Who cares? So because aversion itself is a story, excuses a story, and that's where you, know, you, can, you have to be aware and then you have to connect to the feeling tone. 
But then once you connect to the feeling tone, be careful not to make the feeling tone another label. Oh, I'm aversive. I'm prone to aversion. Big deal. Join the club. You know, it's the, and you know, that's given to all of us. Because our mind is so good at not staying with the discomfort, it keeps on creating a story. Whether you're causing it a label. So pick some modest things. Um, and then, you know, I've done a lot of things with a couple of colleagues at work. People I trust who mean well for me. And when I behave like an idiot, like on a daily basis, you know, they help me. Or my wife. She reminds me, and it's a quid pro quo. I'm very happy to point out everything that's <laughs> <laughs> But because, again, it's a safe, secure place, and you can open up. Boy, that felt so good or so awful. And so, you know, I have some things. I have some beliefs about what my wife should be doing. Now I can acknowledge, you know, it is so juicy, the feeling for me to tell you you should be doing this or should not be. I just call it out. And it's to me the equivalent of calling out Cretan and going past it with a finger. And boom, I'm gone. So those are the things that have worked for me. But what I'm telling you is just a story. You have to listen to your stories. Thanks, Ramesh. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Ramesh. Um, just a, a thought just occurred to me about, yeah, just in, this has been a rich area for me too recently. And um, yeah, it just made me think about, yeah, I just, conditioning around all this is the, the, the habit of judging, that moral judging, being good, being bad, is so strong. And that doesn't seem to have helped me much in terms of, you know, changing my habits or, yeah, you, you know, being a better person, actually. Um, and, yeah, it just makes me reflect on, in some ways, what I think what you were speaking about in terms of in, intention, like that that underlying intention towards goodness, for example, um, or even the intention of interest and curiosity, to me seems like trustworthy. You know, doing something because I want to be good, prove to someone, to myself, it doesn't, it doesn't really do it, and it doesn't feel that good or, or not wanting to be bad. But this actual, actual interest, you know, kind of stepping out of good and bad and actually being interested in the process nature, how things work. And I guess in there, too, is that, that care because I'm not just interested clinically. I'm interested because I care and I want to see how things work. But it's interesting. It reminds me a, a bit about what Ajahn Sumedha and other teachers talk about how, in some ways, all we know is craving and aversion. And so that's going to be our habit when dealing with craving and aversion and with practice. So in some ways, it's chicken and the egg. But, but, but I like that because we're, we're, we're recognizing right from the beginning an intention that's somewhat outside of that, like this, like I, I care or this connection to goodness or just this curiosity like right from the beginning we have to we recognize that and that's sort of a different an alternative view so anyways that's what you made me think of thank you no and uh, those of you who are into some neuroscience uh, it's 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 helpful to read even it doesn't have to be you know technical neuroscience there's lots of very good you know uh, teachers, including, you know, I don't know, some of you may know Robert Wright, who just recently published a book called Why Buddhism is True. There's a lot of solid, good neuroscience that reveals 
how little we understand the processes, but there's a freedom in that. And you know, many of these studies may be familiar to you. You're shown a series of um, you know, uh, photographs of people, and you're asked to rate their warmth. I mean, their, uh, their sense of, you know, you're asked to rate their temperament or their personality. And you say, oh, no, that guy's really warm, or that woman's really warm. And it can easily be modified totally without your awareness by giving you a glass of cold water or a cup of hot coffee or warm coffee. You hold a cup of warm coffee, and you see a lot of warmth in the faces. And you hold a glass of cold water, you feel coldness in personality. I mean, there are thousands. There are you know, wonderful experiments done. It's not to make us feel bad or anything. It's the reality. We don't understand how much conditioning there is. And so you know, in other settings I've talked about, you know, I assume many of us have some liberal tendencies, and our heart goes out to so much injustice, etc. But we also forget that we can create stories and create a narrative that I am compassionate. You know, I'm anti-poverty, I'm anti-racism, etc. But the real connection to racism, poverty, injustice is so painful, it's easy to get into the story of I'm against it, and we create stories. And we go through the motions. And so one of the, the personally for me, a conditioning thing that was very humbling and kind of freeing at the same time was I was in India, you know, a couple of years ago, and I parted company from, you know, the traditional Hinduism a long time ago. Um, so, and there are, you know, North India is as different from South India as, you know, as can be. Um, but I'm a South Indian, grew up with South Indian parents and went to the temple every, uh, you know, every weekend. I noticed that I walk into a South Indian temple and there's a level of ease and comfort that I don't feel in, in a North Indian temple. And then as I, and there was a particular day when, you know, my parents made me go through this long ritual thing, but as I was staying, I just felt like I can be here with the flow, and it's all due to my conditioning before the age of 10 or whatever, just going to some of you, maybe church or synagogue, and I can never get rid of the conditioning. And so how much are we conditioned, whether it's about class or race or whatever? I'm not saying that don't acknowledge the injustice, but also watch the stories that can often come between us facing someone's pain, someone's grief. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I can convince myself that I'm completely sympathetic and compassionate towards people with mental illness. I'll be conning myself. But sympathy and empathy is in the moment. And there are days when, if I've had so much pain and suffering, it is appropriate for me to develop some thickening so that I can get through the day. That's appropriate. But if I say I'm just compassionate towards everyone, all races, all classes, etc., then you will have this angry reaction from time to time that comes from an aversion that you're not sensitive to. I think I may have gone off in, on a tangent, so <laughs> forgive me for that. Um, sorry, we're at nine. So Kevin, did you have any announcements? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.